Greetings program, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 85. I am your host Duncan Shields and with me today is my dazzling, intuitive and sharp dressed guest co-host Curtis Blows. Welcome Curtis. Hey everybody, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you here. I'm really jazzed about these minutes. I am so jazzed about these minutes. Uh, why don't you uh, tell us all a little bit about yourself? Oh, I don't. I never know what to say on these parts. I am a guy who is a photographer, and I'm. I run a local news website, and I watch movies. Uh, way too many movies, one minute at a time. Awesome. That's fantastic. Uh, do you happen to like for for guests that join us for the first time? Do you happen to remember the first time that you saw Tron? Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to do the math here. Mm-hmm. It was my. It must have been my tenth birthday. 1981. Yeah. Do I have that right? That 82 was the was the release year, but uh, it was, it was summer. My... It was, yeah, the summer of 82. It, it's what we went to see for my eleventh birthday party. Oh, right on. Yeah, me and a couple of friends, Dave and Shane. Fantastic. You and I are probably right around the same age then. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I think I, I saw I saw it when I was uh, I thought I think I saw it when I was either ten and a half or eleven. My birthday's in October, so I was probably just about to turn eleven. The yeah, and it was a Christmas release, right? No, it was a summer release. It came out in uh, it was June. A yeah. Well, our theaters here in rural Iowa, kept playing stuff forever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I Maybe. That's how... Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I saw Star Wars at Christmas for the first time when I was six. I saw this around Christmas time. Nice. Or maybe they just always brought them back for the holidays. That's possible. Maybe they just had it lying around in the storeroom and they hadn't sent it back yet, so they just fired it up. I don't know. Maybe it, it just took weird, a while. Though, it would seem weird six though that Tron delays. would come back. Yeah, yeah, because it it wasn't like ET or Star Trek Two or something. But <laughs> so you saw you saw it at Christmas, right? Yes, for sure. Ah, well, there you go. But uh, do you remember what your impressions of when you first saw it as a child? We were so into it. Yeah, my um, oh man, computers were just just the thing for people my age. Yeah. My friend's dad had a, I'm not going to be able to say what it was, but it was like this computer that took up a whole room in their house. Oh, okay. So he had this giant computer in his house. Wow. And we were we were obsessed with MCP. And we were busy trying to solve the problem of how to talk to each other uh, in the, what did we call it here? Not the Matrix and Tron, but the... The uh, grid. The grid. In the grid. We were We were obsessed with trying to create our own grid. And take over computers, uh, take over other people's computers. Fantastic! From his dad's giant computer. Wow, that we sounds like a real it, like a, a real computer back then. That's like it, as much as it could be. It was a real computer back then. Yeah, it had the giant floppy disks. It didn't nice. have the uh, it didn't have the tape drive. It was like that advanced or that behind, yeah, depending that now behind, looking yeah. back. Yeah. Because not long after this, I ended up getting like a TRS-80 Radio Shack computer that had like a, a tape drive. That I oh, yeah, think I, that might have been a couple years later, but I remember the like the 12-inch diskettes, like the really big floppies that you're talking about, right? 
it was shortly after this that um, our computer started getting the Commodore Pets. Yeah. I got a TI-99-4A. Uh, Texas Instruments, okay. Um, we also got an Apple II. Apple yeah, II. yeah. Yeah, they were the big, <laughs> that was the huge, that was a huge one at the time. Yeah, and just immediately went to went to work learning how to program and how to how to break into programs. <laughs> I really I wonder if uh like I know that there was like we've talked about this a little bit before but this I think this movie inspired a lot of people to either get into uh like effects like digital effects in movies or inspired them to get into coding and programming for a living. You know, I think it was one of uh one of the two cuz I think a lot of people really inspired by this movie to go into uh a career of some kind based around this movie in the oh, same totally. way that like I mean, you know you know people that watch Star Trek become astronauts or whatever was this literally the first time the word hacker was used in a movie in this context yeah and i'm not sure if they even use the word hacker in this movie do they use oh, the yeah. word hack oh yeah okay all right cuz they talk yeah. i guess they do talk about hacking into uh hacking into the computer I'm not yep. sure if they ever refer to Flynn as a straight up hacker, but, but no, he uh, refers to he tells he tells them that he's trying to hack into it. Yeah, he's trying to hack into it, and he's been hacking. Yeah, that term was around at the time for sure. Yeah, this this was the first I think movie that really kind of went there. I think that I can think of a mainstream movie. Like I think later on we've got like you know sneakers, and and way later we've got like hackers. I think that was in the nineties. So there's like. <laughs> I think this was, well, another example of how this movie was way ahead of the curve. I think it was, uh, the world wasn't ready for Tron. That's the conclusion I'm starting to come to over the course of this exploration of the movie is that it was ahead of its time in many, many, many regards, both behind the scenes and on screen. But uh, I also understand people's misgivings about it. Well, but, and the fact uh, that they were, they were using terms in this movie, you know, like naming people Ram and Bit and yeah. Trom. Yeah. You know, terms that just weren't in use. Even even us uh, yeah. being obsessed with computers, we didn't recognize that we were using terms that were already in use for computer parts until years later. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I would be, I was like, RAM? RAM? Why does that ring a bell? Right. I think that's got something unapolog- to do with, yeah. They were unapologetically using computer terms with this movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, all right. Do you know? I don't know if you're my same age. Maybe you don't. But how much? How much internet there was in 1982? There wasn't much. I know the ARPANET started, you know, way before in the 60s or whatever 70s. Yeah, 60s, 70s. The uh, the actual internet, internet as we know it, I, know, I think there was like a small collection of, I guess, what they called BBSs, right? A, a few collection of like bulletin boards, um, kind of like you know, super proto uh, messaging boards, like super proto, like not. I wouldn't. I it would it would be unfair to call it a proto Facebook, but just like people had the ability to talk to each other. There was like inner inner company email. I think was just starting to take off. To, uh, to oh, replace, I remember. We to replace we memos. We subscribed to I forget the name of the bulletin board, but it was in 1985. Mm-hmm. 
I got on the internet the first time in my life in 1985. Okay, yeah. Over so these bulletin boards. Very, and very. I got in uh, trouble yeah. being on the internet in 1987 for the first time. Hey, all right, all right, fantastic. <laughs> That's a that's a rite of passage for a lot of people. I think that was the first time I got in trouble on the internet. Yeah, that's we good. had we'd gotten into the local courthouse system, dude. And, wow, uh, wow, that's some war game. Stuff I'm not admitting right to anything here that's going to get me in trouble. No, and for sure. My friend's father, whose house we did it from, came home just screaming at us, wondering what the cops are talking about. Oh my gosh! Well, that's a scary <laughs> moment. Wow. Well, there you go. it wasn't strictly speaking in those days exactly illegal. No, well, the, that's was, it was still of, this gray area of, yeah. you know, like, and don't do a, that again. That's <laughs> a big part of what this movie uh, addresses or is about, too, is that a lot of the laws that are sort of, you know, they, they talk about, like, Flynn was making video games in secret while working for NCOM. Right, and then he's mad because they stole those video games, and I'm like, they didn't steal them, Flynn. You were making them on company time on the company computers. Right, they were they belonged to Encom, and I'm like, oh wait, but at that point in history, nobody knew anything about anything. It was all still the Wild West. There was no uh, laws in place. There was no copyrights. There was no IP copyright. Like none of this stuff. Like it wasn't like I think I've heard that these days it's illegal to buy Colgate.com and then wait for Colgate to come to you and say, we'll buy it off you for this much. Right. I think now if you can prove but squatting it a, was totally how people made millions of dollars in the nineties. Squatting was a, a very, very respectable way to gain computer based income in the eighties. In the right. Cause it's, it was very forward right. thinking. And until they wrote the laws, <laughs> a lot of people got rich off it. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of the the Wild West stuff that happened back then that was still present in this film, which I think is sort of embodied by this film too, like this this free grid, this this free system versus a versus a lockdown system. It's still partially part of the debate that we're having today about the internet, right? Do the corporations own it, or is it still belonging to the people? And it's still has uh, it become a utility? Yeah, has it become a utility? I'd argue that it's you become know, a utility for sure. I. I think I'm coming down on the utility side too, especially now. I I don't know how much you like to refer to current events, however green you want these to be. But right now, you and I are recording this during during the uh, COVID nineteen event. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's unavoidable to uh, to not reference that. This 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 will probably be coming out in September, so we'll see how things have have gone. But I I really think that's demonstrating how much of a utility the internet is as opposed to just this thing that's fun that's privately owned yeah like people were talking about what if you know what if during this current situation if the government shut down the internet and i was like i know better not and i'm sure they won't because half of what's making this isolation bearable is that we've all got streaming services and we can all talk to each other still if they well, took and that it's not if, just like, it's not just that we can entertain ourselves right now. I mean, two days ago, as we record this, 3.3 million people filed for unemployment insurance. Word. Which is, yeah. which beats the old record by millions. Yeah. All in one week. Yeah. And just imagine all the people that work from home, all the people that make their money from home, what that would look like if there was no internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see how it all turns out. I mean, this is if you're listening to this, you're listening to this uh, seven months later. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully everything's uh, we've landed on our feet as a society, at least in some regard. But about uh, let's let's get into minute eighty five. How does that sound? Okay, I guess we could talk about the minute. Yeah, let's talk about the minute. So, like I said, what happens in uh, in this minute? Sark and Tron duke it out on the MCP planes to a spectacular finish as the cruiser carrying Flynn and Yori continues its slow approach and Dumont and the other Guardians keep having their life forces drained into a monologuing MCP. So it's pretty uh pretty pretty cool uh pretty cool moment. This is this is the climax of the film. This is pretty much the the denouement, the big finish. So I'm pretty happy about getting into it. We start we start the minute with a moaning Dumont with his glowing blue uh, glowing blue skeleton again. Uh, he's being drained of his essence like one of the pod people in the dark crystal. His whole his whole body is strobing red and white and blue now, and there's a throbbing electric sound in the background like a power cycle inside a hydroelectric dam or something like that. Just that really deep like wub 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 wub. It's uh it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Um and the MCP is continuing his monologuing on and on, saying, You will each be part of me, and together we, we will we will be complete. And this is David Warner's voice here as he plays triple duty in this film as Sark, Dillinger, and the MCP. But it made me wonder if he got like three contracts. Like, doesn't if does an actor get hired as three actors when that happens? Probably not. I imagine <laughs> I probably not. But if that because if that were the case, I imagine we'd be seeing double and triple roles all over the place on TV shows and stuff. If you could get paid twice somehow just for playing a twin or something that would be oh, i think something would i think be a people lot get more. paid twice for paying two characters i think that has happened yeah i imagine because that would be pretty but, uh that would be pretty sweet my thought is this have you ever done any professional recording read books uh, or sang songs or anything uh no i've done some professional acting but i haven't done any professional recording like voiceover work or anything like that so what happens is the director will give you, um, he'll give you like, well, he'll direct, he'll say, give me an angry reading, give me a happy reading, whatever. Yeah. You'll have all these different, you'll have all these different readings. Use a low voice, use a high voice. And I think, I don't know if it was on purpose or if they discovered in post that they wanted to do it that way, but probably they just took a lot of different readings from, what's his, what's the actor's name? Pardon me. David Warner. David Warner. And just put him together. Oh yeah, probably. I imagine. Oh, I mean, I mean, I don't know if it was on purpose, is what I'm saying. Uh, like what? And what? Like you don't know if what was on purpose. I don't know if they purposefully set out to have multiple tracks of him speaking all at once, or oh. whether they discovered during the during post production that it would be cool to have the NPC represented by many different voices at once. Oh, I don't think I didn't really detect a lot of different voices. I thought it was just his voice, maybe overlaid a little bit, uh, or like you know, doubled up or tripled up or something. But it's just him. And that's cause... what I mean. If you're using if you're using different readings from him, it would kind of represent yeah. that yeah. multiple voice thing that the in... MP3 would MCP would be. Because in the in the novelization and the screenplay, he speaks with like the voice of Legion, right? Like he gets uh uh like when he when he's well, we're thus getting ahead of ourselves, but there's a point where he speaks. Uh, he speaks with like the voice of all the programs that he's corrupted and kept, and he's sort of speaking with the voice of a thousand voices. 
but that's not right. that's not they don't they don't go there they don't go all the way there in the in the movie they just sort of heavily modulate his uh his voice when he's speaking as the mcp that's pretty cool yeah the novel really the novel really digs into this world a lot it more fill, than the movie does yeah that's what's cool like you said you're you're pretty into uh novelizations as a child and so you you know that they novelizations are very good at filling in the blanks or filling in any kind of like why did that happen and then in the novel they can say well this was the main character's thought process and this is this is what was actually happening and tron the novelization is just filled with stuff like that that makes you go oh okay that's what they were trying to do in this scene you know and it's uh it's pretty cool it's been really fascinating to go through the novelization side by side with the minutes because I didn't like. Have you read... been doing it? What's that? Go on. Oh, I was gonna. I thought you were done. I was gonna ask a question. Go ahead. I am done. Have you been reading the book uh, just daily as you record, or what, yeah. weekly as you record? Yeah. So yeah, you're just I've... discovering it as you go. You don't already yeah. know what's coming. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I didn't like read the book first, and now I'm going through it again. I'm just. I, I'm literally going through the book, minute by minute, uh, beside the film. So that's been a lot of fun. Reading in a the, book, the ten pages uh, yeah, that yeah, pertain the, to the to the yeah, three the, minutes that I'm recording this week has really right. been enlightening. It makes me want to go ahead and get the whole thing and read it again, re-experience, yeah, almost almost see Tron again in my mind for the first time, fresh. Yeah, it's it's a whole. It's been a lot of fun reading the book, and I highly recommend it. It's not super hard to source. Um, it's like on, on eBay's and uh, I think there's probably a couple on Amazon or something. Like I think it's out of print, but there's they've mass produced it, so there's a lot still kicking around. And it's not sought well, after, so let's coming from the generation we do, if you dig around hard enough, you'll find a yeah. PDF of it. Yeah, for oh yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. So uh while the MCP is talking, his face takes up the whole screen and the camera is looking up at him and it slowly zooms in and we can see right up the MCP's nose in this in this scene. And uh I'm often I'm often paranoid as a as a taller person, I'm often paranoid that this is the face that I present to people and that they can see right up my nostrils, so I'm often Oh yeah, you got to got to keep over, those things yeah, trimmed when you're tall. Over grooming. Yeah, I groom my nose hairs kind of habitually just to be polite to people that are, that are giving us uh, this MCP view here. The script uh, is very interesting on this part. They describe yeah. him as a, I don't, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but something like a grotesque fat face yeah. distorted. Yeah. It's wild. I've got it down here. Uh, where we got here. And if you look at it, dude looks a lot like Jabba. Yeah. There's a very Jabba thing going on here. Yeah, but they talk about his grotesque appearance and that he's that he's owning it, because right. everything everything that the everything that the MCP looks like here is by design. Everything that the MCP looks like is on purpose. The MCP is looking exactly the way he wants to look here. So this like monolithic look to him is good. But what they couldn't quite get is, as he's described in the novel and the screenplay, is he's like he's got the face of an idiot, but he's also got the face of a really uh, really obese uh person like there's a, he really wants to get this 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 feeling of massiveness but also of uh uh like just you know this really strange power he wants to have this really this pr you know project this giant almost and you know the the con the, 
the parallels between this and the Wizard of Oz are unavoidable because that's kind of like the Wizard oh, right. of Oz. The, the Wizard of Oz's face is this giant, weird, scary face, right? And then, uh, and then the actual wizard is is just an old man with a beard. But, but that's uh, that's something that we get into a little bit later. One side effect of the modulation used to pitch down his voice in these scenes is that he sounds just a little bit like Kylo Ren when Kylo has his mask on. That's one thing that I <laughs> that I was hearing was he's like, "You will join us," you know that kind of that kind of that kind of sound to it. And he's, I mean, he's speaking very similar evil monologues to what Kylo would uh, would say. So there's a sort of Disney connection there. I never thought of it that way. No, I didn't. The, I didn't uh, think of it until I was looking at the minute, and then I was like, "Oh, oh, hey, that's what that reminds me of." <laughs> well, I think we'll still remember Tron. 15 years from now and uh the sequels will be gone yeah we'll see we'll see uh, uh, uh it depends the on if there's, if there's more tron properties if more tron properties get made then this will be uh this will be kept this will be kept in the annals of history did you understand on your first viewing of the movie which i don't you know did was a long time ago obviously yeah that the MCP was just a giant IO tower, the same way that Demont was. Uh, no, I didn't know See, that. I didn't get that either. I thought that the MCP was the MCP, and that Dumont was Dumont. I didn't realize that uh, that the that one was a version of the other, and we don't we don't see that until the end of I think minute eighty seven. But the the we we do see that kind of they are versions of each other and that sort of makes more sense but it also raises a lot of questions because i'm like well what is he then because they talk about how well, he started as a chess program and started as a chess program that was learning yeah and then do you think he's gotten away i mean there's scenes earlier on that says he's gotten away from dillinger where he surprises him by oh, saying yeah. that he's going into the pentagon yeah like the pentagon the Pentagon? You wouldn't dare. I uh well let's let's talk about the fight. We're getting into we're getting into uh we're crossing we're crossing right. the we're getting into details from from later minutes here cuz that's a fascinating question. Like does are you okay, well let's talk about it. Are you are you asking me if do I think the MCP escapes? Is that what you're asking me? Cuz I think that's a fascinating. That's an I that's a cuz he he is trying, like you said, he's trying to get into the Pentagon. He's trying to get into this thing, and at the end of minute eighty-seven, he just he just fades out. There's no there's no de-resing, but there's no body. There's no there's no like he just kind of shudders backwards into blackness. And I'm like, now, thanks to your question, I'm like, oh my gosh, did he just go down the pipes to the Pentagon? Is he still out there? Did he escape into the internet? You know, that's uh, that's that's a very what I always wondered. Thing. Because he never derez, he wasn't destroyed as such. He no. was there, and then he just faded. Yeah, control was wrested away from him, but it's not like well, that, he was exploded or something like that. Oh, well, he sort right. of was exploded. The tower itself exploded. Yeah. Which is a minute that we don't cover, but... No. Or that I don't cover, but, you know, just like Dumont, Dumont had to get out of his, I call it the Sphinx, I don't know. Yeah, is that's there an exactly word how for what that, that thing is. That's what, how it's described in the novel, like a sphinx-like structure. And I'm like, bang, there it is. That's exactly what right. it is. It's hard so to describe, D- but as soon as you say sphinx, you're like, oh, right, that's it. <laughs> so Demont has to get out of his sphinx thing to run around with Lori and everybody. Yeah, 
And that would suggest that since the MC, MCP has one of those, he too would have to get out of that. Yeah. yeah. So him fading back like that is just what it would look like if you were getting out of that. Yeah, like he's just going back into his personal elevator to go down to sub-level 26 till it catches escape shuttle or, or whatever, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly it. You've just changed my whole outlook on the end of the movie now. There's a big question mark on it. He might not be defeated. He might have just scuttered away to somewhere else. Well, whether or not they meant that, it was definitely retconned to be there is no more NCP. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. All right. Well, Which is we, too uh, bad because that would have been that would have been fun. Him coming back more powerful than ever to have to for Flynn to have to take care of again. Flynn ends up. I, I envisioned the sequel to this being something like Flynn starts to get erased from the internet, just like Sandra Bullock on the net. Yeah, sure. And he, and he, <laughs> and he follows the clues and figures out the MP, MCP is still out there coming after him personally now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And he has to go back into the world of Tron and and battle him again and destroy him this time. That'd be pretty <laughs> cool. It might be a little bit too much of a retread. I like the fact that they uh, they 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 brought up something a little bit different for Legacy. But uh, oh, it would be sure. cool to see. I'd like to see MCP make another cameo or Bit. There was we were floating the idea that Bit could be the villain in the next Tron movie. <laughs> like only he's the size of a. Sense. He's the size of like a globe, you know, like this huge, like he's a building sized bit now and he's just holding judgment on people and he's forever bitter be about being abandoned by, uh, by, uh, by clue in the beginning of the first movie. So that's why he's taken over. Cause he's like, there are no opinions. There is only yes or no. Like he's trying to rule everything with this binary fist. You know, I love that idea. Rule everything with his binary fist. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes, right. I want that movie to happen now. That would be pretty funny. Just this thundering the, yes the, and this thundering no. <laughs> I just picture it. And All right, inserting okay, so, that sort of booming, you know, uh, yeah. reverberation into the soundtrack as he does that every time. Yeah, all that the building shakes every time he speaks, you know. So, okay, we nice. cut back to the, uh, we're back now to the high noon frisbee showdown on the cracked mesa in front of the ramp to the MCP, and Tron is just getting hammered into the ground here. He deflects a shot from Sark's disc that sends him sprawling to the ground, and then the disc flies back to Sark, who pitches it at Tron again. We get a wide shot of the disc doing a little corkscrew loop-de-loop thing towards uh, Tron on the ground. But then while lying on the ground, Tron throws his disc at Sark's disc, which is really bold because that's sort of like shooting your opponent's bullets out of the air. You know, like there's a shot of the discs meeting and ricocheting off each other in midair with this fantastic uh, clank or clink, like a, like a giant, like it's like ceramic blocks clinking off of each other or like someone dropping sort of like a heavy engine part onto an ice rink in an empty stadium or something like they... I love that they use these sound effects to mitigate the fact that they're obviously frisbees, you know, like, and if they bumped into it, if they bumped into each other, it would just be like, bonk, it would be just this really uneventful, dull plastic thunk, you know, so anytime they add like a, like a ringing of crystal or like a, like a ceramic clink like that, it just, it really goes a long way towards making them actually into flying identity discs instead of, uh, um, you know, light it up frisbees. But uh, Tron catches his disc and Sark catches 
his, and then Tron leaps over to a couple of different small chunks of the ground, leaping over these uh, deep red volcanic chasms. It's pretty nimble and fearless. Uh, Sark looks on, probably a little worried, but betraying none of it. And then Sark says a fantastic line. He says, you should have joined me. We'd have made a great team, which is something I miss from bad guys in movies. I feel like in the 80s, there was a whole lot of... uh, we're not so different, you and I, you know, or I'd love to have you on my side talk during the final showdown that we don't get much anymore. Well, I guess maybe, again, except in Star Wars. That's Kylo's kind of whole thing to Ray, isn't it? He's like, join me and Vader's whole thing to like. But I think there was a, a lot. Do you, do you feel like that? I feel like there was it was much more common in the 80s for, for villains to be like, Join me. Be on my side. I could use someone like you on my team just so the hero could oh, say, forget it. For you know, sure. Like I, don't, I don't see that very much anymore, I find. If villains didn't hit that beat, something felt off. Yeah, right? Yeah. They needed to have that last, come on over. You know, you have my respect now. Join us. You know, and then, uh, and then the hero would say, forget it. But that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't happen. Flash Gordon, there's a great scene like that in Flash Gordon, too. With, oh, it's uh, all with, over the 80s movies. Yeah, it's all over the 80s movies. The, um, Sark is the MCP's lieutenant. Yeah, his, uh, his, yeah, his first, his second in command or whatever. And who is one of the guy? the novel or the script, I forget which, refers to all of the people that are helping um, Sark bring the conscripts to the MCP. He it also refers to them as Sark's lieutenants. Is that right? Sark has one lieutenant. There is sort of a, a second in command to Sark. He's the guy that gets left behind on the shuttle, and that he's is the a guy character that... that I never noticed before ever in thirty years of watching <laughs> until I read the script. Well, he's only got like two lines, I think, and uh, <laughs> he just spends. He's just the whipping boy, like. You know, the MCP beats on Sark, and Sark beats on his lieutenant. Every time his lieutenant's like, I have an idea, Sark's like, shut your pie hole, null unit. I do the thinking around here, and, like, knocks him to the floor and all that kind of stuff, and just keeps beating him down. And uh, so that's that's all he is. But, yeah, yeah, I, I think when I first saw the film, I didn't realize it was the same guy every time. I think I no, just I, thought I, it, I... He, he was just wailing on you know, various red programs that happened to be on the bridge. I didn't realize it was like, oh, until probably this exploration that I'm doing now, I didn't realize that I'm like, oh, that's, those are all the same guy. That's like a recurring character. I would be so irritated if I was Tron at this point. I mean, it would distract me from fighting. I would, I would just say, what are you talking about? Why <laughs> yeah. do I want to do that? You just left your last guy on the bridge to derez of your ship. Yeah, right? Like This doesn't sound like on. a position I would want. No. Like, if you're going to sell this position to me, come on, man. Yeah, show me how good it is to be on your team. It sounds like it's not a good idea. You know, like, not, a, it just it's not sounds... even remotely attractive. How did, how did we not realize with all of our red uniforms and sharp, scary <laughs> angles that we were the bad guys? What was the... There was an Australian comedian who was like, she talked about the Nazis and she was like, they got up in the morning and they put on black boots, black pants, black belts, black shirts, black jackets, and black hats with skulls on them. Like, how did they even get dressed in the morning thinking that they were the good guys? (laughs) You know, (laughs) 
And I thought, geez, that is an amazing point, you know. Or like that, uh, there's that British comedy series, Mitchell and Webb, where I think there's a bunch of, uh, I think they're they're Nazis and they're like, are we the baddies? You know, are we, wait a second, are we the bad guys? You know, or or the end of, um, the end of Falling Down with Michael Douglas. Right. You know, when he's like, wait, I'm the most notable guy. Sorry, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I never, I didn't think about the movie, but yes. But the other, the, uh, the other really shiny example of that, I think, is in uh, in uh, the Venture Brothers. Okay, the bad which, guys uh, have those sort of the bad guys have those kind of moments all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a good show. Cheese Venture Brothers is a good show. I wanted to talk a little bit, if you don't care, about the different programming that are on these discs. Okay. Now we know that we know that Alan won programmed Tron's discs disc to have the information on it that helps him defeat the MCP, whatever that yeah. means. Yeah. We don't know what that means at this point. We don't know what that means. That's very poorly defined in the film and also in the novel. Right. Um, I, I mean, we can kind of, I think in the next minute we find out what kind of programming is on Sark's disc that lets it do corkscrews and all kinds of crazy double attacks. Well, he's come, just, yeah. And how come Tron can't, and how come anybody can't put that kind of programming on? Like, what's what's the deal with that? Well, that opens up a small can of worms in terms of how can you customize your weaponry in this world. And I really wish that they would explore that more in upcoming installments of the Tron franchise if they go there. Because, like... Anybody who's had a character in a game knows how to custom like on the PC versions you can just crack them and then customize them and a lot of games actually come with those kinds of things you can do to the main characters but in in this movie particularly Sark one of the benefits of being the first officer of the MCP is that you have access to a fire hose of energy that nobody else does Sure. So one punch from him can take somebody's head off. He's a he's a, a powerful, powerful person because of all the power that he has that's being funneled into him by the MCP personally. And so he's got this custom disc that seems to give like three shots, four shots at a time. It'll like smack down on Tron, fly away, come back for two or three more hits before it goes back to uh, before it goes back to Sark. So he's kind of, Tron's f- fighting like four people here, you know, even though it's only one person, because every time Sark throws that disc, it comes in for two or three shots. It's kind of cheating. It's a little underhanded, but that's Sark for you. Well, and when you think about it, if you think about that in the context of what we're really talking about here is he has to have, there has to be some line of code that does that for him. Yeah. Yeah. And all of their code has come from programs that they have appropriated. Okay. So when you start talking about, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go cheesy nineties here. When you start talking about intrusion countermeasures, when you start talking about ice. Yeah. You start talking about ways to, to break that ice. Two or three tacks at a time on one, on one try, that sounds pretty military to me. Okay, sure. All right. And that would not be something that Alan One would have access to. True. 
Alan One was only just writing Tron to be pure intruder intrusion countermeasures. Yeah, just to stop things from getting in and to monitor That's right. them. And we but know not to attack. Yeah, and we know from earlier in the script that the MCP has very much been assimilating military programs specifically. So this is the first time that Alan wrote a wrote an attack program. Okay. A true hacker program. Yeah. That's true. Something that would actually damage another another program. And he's working it's a very it's a very interesting dynamic going on outside inside like out inside the real world building of Encom is we've got Flynn mm-hmm. we've got Flynn coming from the outside and we've got Alan coming from the inside you know like you said this is Alan Alan's working from the inside to take it down and that's uh that's something that he hasn't done before like you're saying there so then here's the question earlier on in the movie we see Flynn talking to who was his program's name again clue yeah we see Flynn interacting with Clue as Clue, in the tank program, goes along trying to break into the file. Yeah, or just sift through the MCP's memory to find the file, yeah. And we kind of get the impression that Flynn... Well, we don't kind of get the impression. Flynn knows there's a tank program. It's called a tank program. Yeah, well, even and, when... And he's the... driving... And he's, helping, and he's having Clue drive this tank through the memory... <laughs> canyons to yeah. get to the file that he needs. So, God, is that what Alan's doing right now with Tron? Is Alan sitting up on a keyboard going, come on, Tron? Yeah, you I, know, like... I wrote this disc to get to the MPC, to the MCP. The Yeah, like, it's a very interesting dynamic that they set up in the beginning of the film that they kind of abandoned later on is that the this brings up the notion of what is the time dilation right how how much time passes outside because in the beginning of the film it almost seems like one-to-one like he's saying to clue go over here and clue's going okay i hear you i'll go over here now what should i do you know and flynn's like okay now go over there and clue's like okay i've gone over here now what should i do but when we zoom into the computer world Flynn's voice changes. Right, and, and it gets know, really fast. Really fast, and really just, you're a good computer, go do this. Like, he starts talking really fast, and he starts really, you know, chattering, and you're like, sort of, I think the idea is that this is kind of like when uh, Sean Connery is speaking Russian in the beginning of The Hunt for Red October, and then it zooms in on a red light, and then it zooms out, and now everybody on the Russian sub is speaking English. Right, like, I think and that, that makes total sense. If we hear, and, and that makes if, total sense to me. I'm totally willing to say, yeah, that's that's what they're doing here because it's just it's programming. Like you're, you're hearing the voice of the user's programming. You're not actually hearing their literal voice commands. So right, uh, cause because that, it wouldn't work real time. It would take you know a week for their voice to actually project in their real time or whatever. Well, and we know that because Flynn. I don't know if you've covered this in an earlier minute. Flynn says at one point that a millisecond is about eight hours. Is that right? A millisecule, I guess. They I don't, guess they're I don't, making up a time thing called a cycle. 
Yeah, they make <laughs> up a time thing called a cycle, and you've done some math on that, but I don't, I don't know if they actually define how long a, a millicycle is. I don't think anybody comes right out and says it, but uh, I could be wrong. I don't remember well, it happening. We know that we know that a cycle is a year. That's that's said blatantly. That's our one clue, right? Oh, I don't remember that happening. Okay, it's either in the book or the script. I don't know where I ran across it. I think okay, it's in the cool. script. That helps a lot. I don't know if I don't know if that made it into the movie. Well, so that's if a, why I if, if a cycle's well, a year. People don't know this. Year. People don't know this because it happened on Facebook. But I did some kind of math on like what what yeah. these terms might might yeah. Mean. You should go over that. That's really fascinating because it's always been a bit of a mystery for me diving into this film. Is what is a cycle and what is a millicycle and and what is my the, theory? Uh, what is the one to one? My theory is this. Uh, we have we have a couple of time clues. At one point, Flynn says that a cycle equals a year. In in our time, he says. So okay. we have a cycle, and then we have something called a millicycle, which he yeah. says is about eight hours in our time. Okay. So I don't know if that that kind of roughly to me means a half a day or a third of a day. Yeah. I haven't done the actual math to see if milli and cycle match up together in thousands. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then, but then, uh, Krom is it? Not Krom. Ram says he has been in prison for 200 microcycles. Right. So it'd be weird if he was expressing time in less than eight hour increments to measure his time in, in prison. Yeah. And if it was, and if a so so I started like doing the math on this like if a does a microcycle equal a day no because that's less than a millicycle right is or micro be, less a microcycle yeah I'm sorry a microcycle cycle would be more than a millicycle because you yeah. wouldn't measure in in such small increments as thirds of a day yeah so it's bigger than a millicycle mm-hmm. is it a month well if you're in prison. And you were in prison, people do say months, but if you're in prison for 200 months, you would start talking in terms of years. No, it's like uh, like babies in their first few years of existence. You know, you say they're 11 months, you say they're 13 months, you say they're 14 months, and you need to because the change is so huge from month to month. But once they get past right. two years or whatever, you, you just say two years. You don't say... Uh, exactly. So if he were in prison for 200 microcycles and a microcycle equal to month, that would make it, you know, several years out. He would yeah. just start saying, I've been here for, you know, five cycles. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I concluded. What's your So conclusion? I concluded that it is probably, and, and if he, and if a microcycle was a week, 200 weeks would be an extremely weird way to keep track of time. Very strange way you to would just, say it. You would just say months at that time. You'd be like, ah, I've been here for, you know, nine, whatever months, whatever the word for months are in Tron. Yeah. Windows. So I think a microcycle is a day. Okay. Makes sense. 200 days. And he would be sure. there 200 days. Yep. I like it. I like that a lot. I think that works out really well. Well, if that theory works. <laughs> <laughs> that Makes I don't sense. I don't know what that means, but now now we have computers ticking by at what what was a uh, what was clock speed on a computer back in 82? Do you even Oof. know? Jeez, we hadn't. Uh, we had. I remember in the late nineties, nobody people were talking that we could never break a gigahertz. <laughs> but 
because that <laughs> was just fools. impossible. Super, those naive <laughs> fools. And, that, you know, yeah, nobody would, and what was it, uh, the famous quote from Bill Gates about nobody would ever need more than 12 megs of memory or something like that. I remember, yeah. I remember buying my first meg, uh, a full meg of uh, storage space yeah. for $100. Sheesh. <laughs> Well, that's one thing that comes up on the, like, well, yeah, when this film was being rendered, the computers they were being rendered on didn't have enough memory to save the picture that was being rendered. Right. Right. So you'd have to render it, literally take a photograph of it, destroy it, and then render the next frame and then take a picture of that. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because they only had like 330 megs of memory in total. Wow. uh, So they weren't even using the that supercomputer in Texas yet at that point that got probably used on not last like, starfighter they i think they might have used something very similar but it had the processing power to create the images but it didn't have the memory to save them because that was sort of a an afterthought that's kind of like well why would you need a bunch of memory to save stuff like storage was not what it was about it was about processing power so that's why it was sort of like getting the images was more of a priority than storing them, which might have been the same for Last Starfighter. I don't know. I wonder if anybody's going to do a deep dive on that one, but I don't know. Oh, I'm sure somebody will. We'll All eventually right. get down there. <laughs> we got lots to uh, lots to cover in terms of the battle. <laughs> so let's yeah, see here. The, uh... the, this this is a great uh, great moment. So like Sark Sark throws his disc again and Tron deflects it only to have it swoop away and come back two more times to attack him like an angry bee. He crouches and holds his disc behind his neck to deflect those two shots. I mean, and this, I mean, Bruce Boxleitner is really selling these impacts. You know, the light and the sound are are pretty good too. But Sark catches his disc. Sark catches his disc and shouts, you're very persistent, Tron, and winds up to throw his disc. But Tron with a smirk says, I'm also better than you, which is a pretty sick burn. <laughs> I thought was pretty uh, pretty good on Tron's part. But, and Tron isn't super phased here. This is one thing I like about this beat. He's smiling and he's relaxed. Like this has taken an effort, but it's also entirely what he's built for. You know, like to quote Captain America, like he I, he could say, I could do this all day. You know, like he, he, he relaxes a bit to deliver this line. And there's just a moment I remember in the movie of like, don't drop your guard and gloat, Tron. Like, you know, remember what happened to Prince Oberyn in Game of Thrones. Like, don't, don't just start smiling. Don't engage him in conversation. Like, keep fighting. This is his plan is to distract you. But we cut back to Sark and he's just glowering and staring. And this, that insult really hit home. I think he's quite angry and unsettled. There's an element of like, oh, it's on now. But also a moment of like, oh, geez, Tron is right. But it's also like, throw your disc. Don't just stand there, you know. So Tron slowly winds up. And this is the moment in the film that just blew my mind. Tron slowly winds up. There's the pitch. And he throws his disc overhand at Sark in silence with more little sort of clippity-clopping of his feet on the mesa there. And we get a wide shot of them facing off against each other as Tron's disc arcs to the left and over to Sark. Sark holds his disc up, but Tron's disc busts right through it and gets Sark right in the head. Like I did not see that coming. It still shocks me when I uh, when I see it. 
you know, his disc separates with tons of light and electric zapping, and there's a big musical, a big musical sting. We got a shock of a wobbly, uh, a shot of a wobbly David Warner with a giant gash in the top of his head and exposed computer brains, and uh, this really ramps up the violence in the scene. Like whoever, I think whoever in the audience who had tuned out by this point must have been like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's what's going on?" And then uh, Sark's eyes glow red, and he leans forward. Uh, slack faced out of frame as sparks and turquoise electricity trail from his from his rune they say in the um in the in the creator's commentary this is the shot that got tron its pg rating that uh that exposed brains in a family film <laughs> give it a give it a pg <laughs> a pg rating even if they're like electronic computer brains or uh or whatever um but I just remember this so clearly because it's Tron's. Uh, it's his first shot that connects with Sark. Like he throws, like Sark ducks one shot from Tron in a previous minute. But other than that, Tron has deflected around ten shots from Sark's disc. But this is the first shot that's connected with Sark, and uh, and it's a shot that Sark could probably easily plan a defense for. Like I remember a lot of movies up to this point, there's a rule of three going on, like. The good guy tries, fails, tries again, fails, you know, and then tries like a complete sort of Hail Mary maneuver. And then that's the one that's successful. But this is just like shot number one, boom, headshot. And I was like, what? It's so it's uh, I thought it was really, really cool. Do you remember this scene having like a like a, what do you think about this scene? This this particular shot of that kind of impact. The thing that particularly impresses me about this scene is that you don't know this is a this is a headshot at first the disc gets thrown you're not expecting it to do anything you're not expecting the battle to be over at this point yeah it breaks his it breaks his uh recognition disc identity yeah. disc and he leans back and you don't see the wound on his head for a minute yeah for a second you just think, oh, you know, this is taking it to the next level. There's going to be some more fighting going on. What's he going to do next? But then he leans forward, and you see his brains leaking out the top of his head. And at that point, 11-year-old me is just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and whoa. it's so cool. The way that they... I, I don't know how to... It wouldn't be the same... And I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, and I'm, I'm mm. taking from the commentary. Yeah. It wouldn't be the same if they had just had some, like, colored dots coming out of there. It's so yeah. cool that they yeah. use clock clock parts. Yeah, a handful things. of, yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. Like, it's perfect. It's perfect for what it is. Like, I think I can see a little minute hand in there. There's a few little gears, right? right? Oh, have uh, you have you zoomed in and analyzed it? <laughs> not 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 to a huge extent, but like once I heard it was clock parts, I'm like, oh okay, yeah yeah yeah. There's a clock part right there. I can also see like a little tiny fuse in there, but it's uh it's a really nice sort of handful of of uh, digital brains or whatever. You know, I thought it's it was just uh, such a nice touch. Yeah, it's just such a perfect little. I don't know. I. I I don't know why that appeals to me so much. Just the fact that there's all this analog clockworks inside of this completely digital thing just gives yeah. him some realness, some it, humanity. Yeah. 
<laughs> some clockinity. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like uh I don't know. I think it appeals to like when we were trying to make like a steam driven robot back in the 1800s that would like do the plowing for people. I think there's something about a clockwork automaton that um like they were they were making like there's jewelers were making clockwork automatons for different kings and princes you know in the like 1500s and 1600s i guess or whatever like this kind of like wind up ballerina and all this like a clockwork person i think goes back to the very origins of artificial humanity and to have uh and this is an artificial human and to have clock parts fall out is just it's poetry right like they could have had anything fall out they could have had anything fall out and they chose a handful of clock parts i think a because of their utility they look functional and they're tiny and you can have a bunch of them spill out and it's not just going to be a bunch of like i don't know nails or cubes you know they look like they actually have a function but it's also like ah clock parts of course clock parts and then on top of that I don't know how much of a programmer you are, are you? Not much. Not much of a programmer. I use computers in my job, but I'm not much of a programmer. I would call myself at best uh, an amateur script kitty. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to I know how to put chunks of code together to make them work. Mm-hmm. I don't actually I, I haven't written original code since the eighties. Right. But clockwork is a perfect metaphor, I think, for a program. Yeah. Making the lines fit together, call each other perfectly. Yeah. You know, no, call up, right. do your data calls perfectly to make everything work and function exactly how they're supposed to. Yeah. And the fact that the fact that this intrusion program that Alan wrote is able to break the identity disk and break into the shell around Sark's head and mm-hmm. mess up the programming in there like a virus would. Yeah. Is is it is poetry. I like that word. It's a perfect yeah. metaphor for how that would work. For how that yeah. works. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that, but like he's going to So now like... there's gonna be this there's gonna be this major cascade error all the way through Star Guys <laughs> yeah. as these yeah. things don't work right in his head anymore. Yeah, this one these these few things, these few important things have been broken as functions and then they'll break more functions and they'll break more functions and it'll waterfall down his whole being uh until he has to like fall down and complete uh you know discomposure and he's no longer working they had to be thinking this way when they wrote it hopefully i don't hopefully. i don't think you get that accidentally these are programmers i think that knew what they were talking about as they wrote this 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 movie so much yeah more... they were also just like visual <laughs> animators who wanted to make something that looked cool Right? right, so I think there was a there was a, a bit of both. I think there might have been some happy accidents in this film that programmers can look at and go, "Oh, that is that is perfect. That's exactly what it is." And the creators would be like, "Oh, is it? Great, you know." Like, <laughs> and this yeah, might we, be uh, this, we we meant that we meant it. Uh, you know, this this might be one of those, but I don't I don't know. Okay, well that would make sense. I mean, you know, but you're right. As a metaphor, it works beautifully. I love it. So here we are. So here we are. The red face of the MCP fills the screen as he is shocked at what he senses outside. He turns over to the battlefield, whispering, Sark, all my functions are now yours. Take them. And we see Sark's body with a bunch of red electricity arcing up from the ground into his body and a huge beam of red light beaming directly into his head from the sky. 
and the beam and the electricity start to fade as his body stirs and starts to stand. And you can see, you can see all the odds and ends of his brain, uh, you know, lying scattered around in front of him. There's clock parts, but it's also like, I don't know, pull tabs from cans or drywall screws or maybe a Christmas light. Like it's probably just all clock parts, but I really want to do a, 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 a full zoom in and try to identify which, uh, I what know, they all I are. Know, it's so cool. The, so Tron, um, yeah, so Tron so the is, end of oh, this sorry, minute yeah, yeah. is right as okay. So what describe the end of the minute for you because I might have a different version of okay. the movie. I got Tron because the uh, end Tron. of my minute is yeah. just as Sark is coming up and bits of brain are spilling out of his head. Oh, okay. Well, the end of my minute is very close to that. It's like Tron's now in the inner sanctum of the MCP and he hucks his disc at the nexus of the hourglass of MCP's I don't know neck for lack of a better term. And then uh, gray panels come up and surround this vulnerable part of the MCP. And they spin around to fill in the blanks as Tron's disc derezzes them. And Tron hammers on them once, twice, three times. And the MCP keeps saying, like, Sark, Sark, like, help me out. And then his light lines and pulses inside his column change and align as he absorbs the hits from Tron's disc. But then outside we see Stark start to stand up slowly as glowing bits of electricity still drop like glowing snow from his from his headwind and then we cut to a exactly wide shot where i am in two yeah and then we cut to a wide shot of the mesa and we see sark's carrier approaching and then we cut inside to the cockpit and flynn and yori are still puzzling out the controls when yori stands up straight points at the mesa and says look at that and then that's the end of the that's the end of the minute very 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 brief at the end of the minute but basically it ends with uh sark standing up dropping bits of glowing <laughs> brains onto the mesa very cool. The oh man, I just did that red letter media line. Very cool. Very oh, very cool. cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like to go over the, the uh, uh, sorry, on what? the commentary. So I'm also a photographer. On oh, the commentary, good. they said that they used a a sixteen. I'm sorry. Yeah, a sixteen millimeter. Do I have that right? Th- that's right. Yeah, sixteen millimeter. A sixteen millimeter. And then they talked about something that I don't know. Do you know what a video, let me see if I've got this. Video right. tap, I think they called it, right? A video tap is? What is that? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think what they're talking about is uh, a video tap on a, on, a, on a cinematic camera is like when you, when you put a line into a cinematic camera and it goes out to a monitor so that the director can see what's on the camera. The director can sit in his director's chair underneath a canopy to protect him from the rain, looking at a covered monitor television screen to see what the camera is seeing. And it'll have like a you white square are, in the middle. And You are exactly right. I, yeah. I did that dreaded podcast thing and looked it up while you were talking. And that's <laughs> exactly I don't, what it is. I don't understand. They had to get so low with the camera that they couldn't see into it and they had to do like a video thing in order to see what what the camera was seeing. Oh, okay. That, Which I oh, guess would have been unusual in these days. Yeah, it would have been unusual in those days, but it would have made sense because the cameras they were using were bonkers huge. They were these 65-millimeter right. giant monsters that they they had to, like, bolt to the ground that weighed a tremendous amount. So, like, and yeah, so they would if, have had to, they would have had to do, to do like what? A, getting, getting Sark from the ankles up, bringing the camera right. that low. Yeah, I can see them needing a tap for that, for sure. Okay, that makes sense. Right, because otherwise they would have had to do the thing that they did in Labyrinth and Jedi where they went below the floor. Yeah. And were filming up 
you know, yeah. cut the floor away and film up at him that way. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go, do you want to go through the differences between the, the screenplay and the novel specifically? Oh, sure. There's a pretty neat moment in the novel where Tron's disc hits Sark's disc a couple of times, just like Sark's disc comes back for multiple hits on Tron. And there's also this great moment that I'm I'm kind of glad that they, they didn't use, but I'm also kind of sad that they, they didn't use. When Tron jumps up into the air, pulling his legs up to hop over Sark's disc for one of uh, one of Sark's misses, like he's almost doing. Oh, like see, a, I, air I splits. Like see that. that would have been pretty awesome. <laughs> like it's a Van Damme moment where he, he just does a flippity do <laughs> over the. Uh, that would have been pretty cool. Well, the other thing that's different about this battle too is there's a moment where the discs are flying next to each other, fighting yeah. each other. Yeah, that's right. Like I think, just like, just like yeah. in, uh, I don't know. Uh, Highlander. Okay. Where they're flying through the air having a sword fight next oh, to Oh, yeah, other. that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the discs are parallel and they're both coming for Tron and that's when he does his uh, his leap into the air his... over both discs and grabs his own out, his own one out of the air. Right, and isn't that sort of the, in the screenplay, in the novel, isn't that the point where he then whips around and, and gets, gets Sark? Yeah. The thing yeah. flies back, yeah. Yep. Yeah. He does his backhandy, uh, backhandy triple flap, you know, triple lutz or whatever, and then uh, throws his disc, and then that's uh, that's the end of the fight. But when well, you're, yeah, also, oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Oh well, another difference that I had noticed was when they were derezzing the programs inside of the walls of the MCP. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me that that's what was going on. No, I thought um, it was more they torture. They weren't I doing didn't the. Realize. They weren't doing the de-res noise. Yeah, and they weren't digitaling out. No, no, it was very. It the, was unclear. The, I thought they were just getting tortured more because because in the we see Dumont up against the torture triangle in his cell in Sark's cruiser before this, and he's getting electrocuted right. and he's just getting hurt. And this this looks like the same thing. It's not so clear the that they're actually being absorbed. The difference this makes for me, and I think it's a failing of the movie where the book makes it up, is that I don't get that I don't get that sense of time being of the essence. I don't get the ticking time bomb of we're gonna lose DeMont if we don't hurry in the movie. Yeah. No. I just think he's being tortured. I know he's gonna be absorbed, but that's not the same as no. you know, he's actively, There's we're no, actively trying to save him. There's no like there's no visual cue that that we're in a hurry here. He could conceivably be against that wall for a couple of days. There's no like we right. have to do this in the next thirty seconds, or Dumont's life hangs in the balance. In the novel, the other guardians start to actually disappear, like right. they're getting absorbed one by one, and yeah, Dumont we see is him. like number nine and number one through four have been absorbed already. So like it's right. We're seeing people. Him. We're seeing people disappear, and it's like, oh my god, hurry up. We're going to yeah. lose DeMond. Yeah. But then let me yeah. ask you this also. And and I hate to talk negative about a film, but let's let's go ahead and just for a second go there. Do we really care about DeMond? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm with you. Like if his life hangs in the balance, I'm like, well, I hope you save him, but I'm not yeah, like. Yeah, I hope you uh, save him, but. <laughs> more, more power to DeMond, but I'm not like, he's not the crux of the film, you know? Like if it was if right, it was, I didn't even you know, know. 
I'm not Nori even sure. Or Flynn or whatever, then that would be different. But because to me, the movie just depicts him as the guy who has the one place where we can get to Alan One, and then once yeah. we get to Alan One, Dumont doesn't matter anymore. His use as yeah like now his use is to see this is how he's he's somebody that the the mcp can kick around so that we can see how bad the mcp is and he's one of the cast of good guys so hopefully and so now his role in this scene is to show the price of failure except that they don't pay that off i suppose it's the because he hasn't really what do you mean i don't know i'm interested in what you're saying there what do you what do you mean well after alan won we haven't really seen... I mean, we kind of saw a price of failure scene when Flynn was thought to be dead. But we're not really oh, getting the okay. price of failure scene here where if they lose, everybody's going to be absorbed into the NBC. And we've I talked see. about it. We've talked about it sort of in the abstract through the whole movie. Yeah. Here we would actually see how painful and horrible that is. Yeah. And then yeah. they don't pay it off. That's very true. If they could say, this is what will happen to you. This is what will happen to everybody. Everybody, if the MCP wins. Yeah, and they don't. Should, yeah, you're right. They don't do that. I think that's the died. point. Yeah, that's the point. I yeah. think that's the point. But they don't do it. They have this character that they should have killed that should have shown them the price of failure. He's the perfect, yeah, he's the perfect character to do that to, to fully painfully de-res him to say, this is yep. what's going to happen to all of you. And uh, we get to see Lori react to that because she yeah. loves him. That's all right. of that stuff. It's uh, it's also different in the novel when they're in the cockpit and they're looking down at the battle. It's Flynn who says, look down there. And then Yori says, oh, Tron, I thought he was dead. And then Tron looks up at the carrier and realizes that only one person could have had the power to stall a de-resing on a ship like that. And that Flynn must be aboard the character uh, aboard the carrier. And it also oh, yeah, that makes, was huge, too. It also makes a point of pointing out that Tron's disc is turbocharged and way more powerful because of the refurbishment and bonus that Alan One gave it, which I don't think is made super clear. Like I see, like Alan One says that he's put more information on the disc and that that's the information that'll be needed to disrupt the MCP if you get the disc into the neck. But I don't think it's... It doesn't have a. It's not a plus twenty ogre slaying knife. They 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 don't they don't they don't make it clear that it now has a super huge uh, boost. Like that didn't even occur to me. I thought Tron just had an excellent overhand throw. I thought that the only reason well, that Tron's disc is breaking through Sark's disc is because they've never gone toe to toe before. That this would happen well, and, anytime. But and because I played the video games, I thought it was more about as a kid watching this movie. I didn't realize that it was a supercharged disc. Yeah. I thought it had more to do with Tron being a good warrior and having good timing. Yeah. Like in the video game. Yeah, exactly. He's like, right now, you know, like, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) You've got your comb out and you're doing your all over (laughs) your buttons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, what do you call it? Um, 
the description of Sark's death is really cool. Or Sark's uh, Sark's wound here. It says, Sark, Sark stood, empty hands still uplifted, eyes bulging in shock and disbelief. An instant later, energy and the essence of the program Sark began to gush from the hideous wound like smoking phosphorescent blood, roiling and crackling, streaming down his face and armor, evaporating off into the air. So it was almost more like a like a fog or a magic smoke that was coming oh, out. Which... We just need to take a side note right here for you to tell me who the name of the author of this is. Brian Daly. Brian Daly. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, Brian, the, the, the guy Brian who actually Daly, yeah. made, I mean, he's the one that made the, the Han Solo trilogy back that's in the right. days so good. That's right. That's right. He's the guy. He's the so, guy. God, not, Brian Daly, so he's, good yeah, for you. Not just, uh, not just some guy. This is, a, this is a very reputable author that did this Did this. One of the two. One of the two that was uh, the guy you wanted to go to for a novelization. Yeah, that's right. That's you wanted right, this yeah. guy or you wanted, uh, what's his face, Alan something. <laughs> Alan Dean Foster, yeah. Alan Dean Foster, yeah. That's right. These are the two you wanted to go to if you had a movie coming out in the 80s. Yeah. Because uh, they then, really cared. They really got into they, the script. and They, they really, really did. They really yeah, they, added their own stuff. They did it. Yeah, they didn't just churn something out. They really went in there. Uh, or, you know, he didn't... Brian Daly wasn't the kind of guy that watched the movie or read the script and said to himself, Hey, how come the, uh, Laurie and Flynn didn't derez and the thing still exists after going through the box like the movie did? Yeah. He said, Well, I guess I'd better answer this. Yeah. And then did so in the novel. Yeah. Because yeah, as I... an 11 year old, I thought they were dead. Yeah. And then they just go through it and they're fine. And I'm like, Well, oh, okay. Well, I guess they're yeah. just fine then. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they're alive and everything. I'm 11, whatever. <laughs> but, but, huh? You know, yeah, for sure. Uh, then when uh, Tron heads into the MCP's housing, the MCP is unaware of the outcome on the battlefield. So. When Tron walks in, the MCP is all like, oh, good, Sark. It's good to... What? And then Tron says... Right, right. Yeah, Tron says, I don't think it is good for you, MCP. And there's a whole scene here where the Tron rushes to Dumont, asking him where Yori and Flynn are. And the MCP is really panicked and freaking out. And then Tron fires his disc before the MCP says, Sark, and the, and the rest is happens. But it also makes right. a point of saying that Sark is dead but his shell is still around because of all the power he's been given by the MCP. So the MCP diverts like a city's worth of power into him, but he's just reanimating Sark's corpse to make him into a puppet. This isn't Sark right. They make it clear. They make it clear that whatever that was inside, that he's a zombie at this point. Right. That it isn't really Sark. He's now, he's now the MCP. Yeah. Yeah, he's a string puppet. And then in uh, in the screenplay up in the carrier bridge, Flynn says, I can rev this baby up a little. Wait a minute. And then he's like, Yori, Yori, <laughs> look. And, and Yori says, Tron, with tears streaming down her face. And she says, Flynn, we've got to help him. And Flynn says, let's get some power here, and puts his hands on the carrier controls, shooting power into it. And uh, that's a very different scene than what we see. in the, and Like you said, they just miraculously sort of survive the de-resing and you're like well that's weird okay and uh the same van damme maneuver is there in the fight from tron and there's more talking in the actual uh disc throwing in the movie which mostly in between attacks it's the same when tron comes in and he does his i don't think it is good for you mcp and uh i'm kind of like the mcp says uh sark how have you allowed this program 
to beat you and tron says sark's out would you like to leave a message and the mcp oh says <laughs> and the mcp says i am the message the only message sark and then uh and then it goes over to dumont and has a conversation like i can i kind of like those uh those beats but at the same time it paints the mcp as not really aware of what's happening on his front doorstep like it, if, it if you can't if me, you can't sense that. your main if your main lieutenant is dying right outside your front door and you don't sense it i don't know for me it isn't that that isn't the problem for me the problem for me is that this is just cheesy writing that's really bad yeah it's really <laughs> Yeah. I'm so glad this isn't in the movie. Yeah. It would it would make a huge difference. It would totally it would just be, you know, Dudley the hero coming in yeah. with his hands on his hips going, ha ha You thought you could defeat me. Not so fast, MCP. Yeah, it's very it's very Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm really glad that's not in there. Yeah. Okay, so I just wanna I just wanna address this quick. The there was a scene earlier where we see that Flynn has god powers. He can yeah. reanimate the corpse of dead tank program or In whatever it was. Yes, yeah, several scenes. Program. Several scenes he's got god powers, yeah. So there are people that would listen to this podcast and go, well, you guys are idiots. We've seen that three different times. You should know that oh, he's, sure. he's making the recognizer work by because he's a god. Yeah. I mean, and, a line a line uh, would help. I mean, it is a visual medium, you know. But yeah, right, right. That's and and that's all I want to say is that as an eleven year old kid, who this was clearly aimed at, yeah, um, eh, gives the benefit of the doubt. We're eleven. Yeah, that was no, more than I ten could, minutes ago. I didn't. I don't remember watching. Yeah, I don't remember watching the movie and getting hung up on it. I don't remember right. going, what? How is this? I was just like, okay, well, that was cool. Yeah, I don't really know what happened, but now look at this cool fight. That's what I remember. But Well, this, uh, this minute has gone on pretty long. <laughs> yeah, this takes us to the end of Minute 85. Do you have any place online where people can uh, find you if they want to hear more of you? Oh, not in this moment. Okay, I, you know, cool. I don't know. You can go see my, I, I guess if you're a guy, I don't know. I, I've got like an OnlyFans for my photography. I've got. Oh, know, cool. If you're interested specifically in one small town in Sac City with 2,000 people and what happens there, you can go <laughs> read the news site. Okay, cool. Sacnews.com. Uh, nice. <laughs> All right, but cool. I don't know. Well, if you uh, if you want to get in touch with us, check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Minute by Minute listeners page. Uh, we're also available on a great number of podcast servers out there, so uh, definitely go out there and uh, give us a search and see what you can find. A shout out to pond5.com for the music and special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. Go on over to moviesbyminutes.com and see if your favorite movie is there. And if it isn't, if it is astoundingly not, like Tron wasn't, then consider doing one yourself. I find it to be a very inclusive and encouraging community. Uh, do you want to come on back for a minute 86 there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll crash on the couch and talk to you tomorrow. Oh, okay, good, sounds good. Do you want to try a little uh, end of line on three? I, I, I was kind of wondering who was going to say it first. 
All right. Well, okay. Well, we'll do it then. Uh, one, two, three. End of line.